Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome to the Art of Range. My guest today on the show is Dr. Kirk Davies at the Eastern Oregon Agricultural Experiment Station in Burns. Kirk, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What was your pathway to becoming a range scientist, and how did you end up in Burns, Oregon? Well, that's kind of interesting. So I was always really interested in being outdoors and stuff like that. So when I was getting close to graduating from high school, I thought, you know, this range field sounds really interesting. And so I went into that and my original plan was just to go get a four-year degree and go out and work in the field. And I actually came to the Burns Research Station as a summer student to work for one of the other scientists here. And I started doing that. I thought, man, you know, I'm not sure I want to quit going to school. I think I might want to actually be, you know, a scientist and get, you know, an advanced degree, you know, a PhD. And so that's kind of how I got into that. And then of course, I end up um, working with one of the scientists here for my PhD in Burns. And so that was kind of how I got looped in with the Burns Research Station in terms of potentially being a scientist. And I didn't really think I'd end up in Burns because it's a very small research unit. And so I was starting to get close to being done. And I started applying for jobs in um, other areas, most of them being, you know, I'd be a professor at a university. Uh, Dr. Roger Sheely had a postdoc open, and it was like a pretty good opportunity to work with a, a pretty well-known scientist. But then also at that time, I met my future wife, and she had a job here, and so she kind of was, you know, wanting to, you know, stay here for that. And so I asked, you know, if they were, if I would be qualified for it, and he said, "Yeah, please apply." So I took that job, and nine months into that job, they had a scientist position open here, a permanent science position. And so I applied for that and got that, and then I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. And you're the lead range scientist here. I am now. Yeah. How many How many folks are here? So there is, I think we have eight scientist positions on the federal side, and we have then three on the OSU side. Okay. And right now we're kind of in a we're filling a bunch of positions that have been open for a while in terms of scientist positions. In a a 2012 rangeland ecology management paper that you co-author with about a dozen others, a big paper titled Revolutionary Land Use Change in the 21st Century, Is Rangeland Science Relevant? Uh, you wrote, or you, you all wrote, the revolutionary land use changes necessary to support national and global food security while maintaining other ecosystem services make rangeland science more relevant to sustainable land management and policy now than ever. I would say this is mostly why why I got into the range field before I had enough life experience to really think much about it. Uh, namely, what interested me was that it seemed like an integrative discipline that 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 set out to make real world decisions in real time that make a difference to real people. Uh, decisions based on a broad view of all of the resource values and the social aspects that are relevant to a given decision. Uh, but it seems like there are fewer universities doing range research and producing range-educated graduates than when I left the University of Idaho uh, back in 2001. Do you think that uh, that the, that downward trend is played out and might reverse? It, it feels like there's jobs out there, uh, 
for people who have that kind of background, even if they're not advertised specifically as rangeland jobs? I'm hoping it's reversing. I haven't seen it reverse yet. As you said, I mean, the jobs are, are, there's a lot of jobs out there and some are specifically range jobs, but the number of students coming out with a range degree is really low. And for me personally, you know, I'm not as tied to the university as other people are. I mean, I have grad students at the university, but I'm not there seeing how many students they have come through. But what I do notice is that when we look to hire postdocs or full scientists, that there just isn't the number of um, ones that have a range degree as we would have saw, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so it's, it's I think it's a concerning issue that hopefully will reverse itself as people realize that there's, you know, plenty of re very rewarding jobs that are, are you know, fairly high paying too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the podcast, we're doing a series of episodes on livestock management for ecological resiliency, uh, whether ecological, economic, or social. And all three of those are important for rangeland health. Uh, that follows an episode series on uh, some fundamentals of rangeland management, at least with regards to livestock. A lot of ranchers find themselves today on range that is infested with invasive annual grasses. Uh, that could be cheatgrass, ventonata, medusa head. Uh, we have all those in Washington and Oregon, both. And in much of the West, there's a lot of talk about using grazing to control those grasses, but it seems like making progress, and by progress I mean uh, decreasing either the extent or the density of invasive annual grass, has been limited. And those successes seem to be uh, relatively local rather than regional. Uh, what have you learned here at the Burns Experiment Station about grazing to suppress invasive annual grasses? We haven't done a lot of it, but what we have seen is that it's generally been not very effective. It Maybe you can suppress in the short term, but it's really hard to make that transition then to a perennial dominated community. The We've been actually associated with some of the research looking at now fall and winter grazing of annual grass invaded areas to reverse that trend. But most of that is still pretty preliminary that most of it hasn't had a control versus that kind of treatment, but it looks promising. The question is, is in these communities, is there enough residual perennial to take advantage of any reduction in annuals. We also see that some of these areas don't really have the fall green up of cheatgrass or they don't have it every year. And so that makes it challenging to have as an effective treatment as we would like. On the other end of it, the spring treatments to graze that generally haven't been very effective at being able to transition it to a different plant community. And largely because it's really hard to graze the annuals when the perennials aren't also green and susceptible to um, you know, pressure from grazing. What people have had sec success with that have been really on top of it and have been, you know, very carefully monitoring as soon as, you know, you have green up of your native perennials, then the cows have to go somewhere else. So it's very challenging, but there is, uh, it looks like there's a future for um, more research in that. And then hopefully, you know, um, some more ability of people to apply that. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the writing on grazing to discourage cheatgrass have focused on targeted grazing in the spring when the seeds had seeds heads are green and we can attempt to stop uh, seed production or slow it down. But uh, Kevin Gwynn, who was the NRCS state range specialist for Washington State for some time, liked to say that the first rule of grazing management is that the cows have to be somewhere. <laughs> uh, the second rule is that they can't be everywhere. And if you've got a large area 
in which you're you're trying to treat cheatgrass with cattle and it requires annual treatment you can't have all your cows be on every acre which means every acre that they're not on you've got cheatgrass growing uh, unmolested during that period of time talk a bit about grazing to encourage the vigor and reproduction of perennials you know severe grazing or what Ken Tate calls improper grazing results in too much pressure on perennial grasses and that causes the plant community to shift toward plants that either tolerate heavy grazing you know whether that's frequent defoliation or less frequent but severe defoliation or maybe both together uh, that decline in perennial grasses is often accompanied by a complementary or corresponding increase in invasive annual grass so heavy grazing to reduce fire risk could backfire and increase fire risk by increasing the base of annual grasses. I think we're at a point in this discussion, this you know, west-wide discussion, about how to manage wildfire. You know, people are paying attention, and I'm afraid that we're going to end up with you know, some polarized viewpoints where you have, you have some in the industry saying, you know, graze it all, graze it hard, that'll slow down wildfire, and others saying, Graze it all, graze it hard is what got us here in the first place because uh, these are, these rangelands were not all covered in cheatgrass previously. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on grazing to encourage encourage perennials? Um, I think that it's really challenging to encourage perennials, you know, grass and stuff with grazing. I think the more effective way of viewing grazing with most of our native perennial grasses is grazing to not damage them or to um, essentially make them uh, respond differently to fire. The actual grazing to encourage them to grow better or more than that, there hasn't really been any true evidence that that works. I think, um, as you kind of mentioned the fire aspect, there is an aspect with grazing to manage fire that's gonna be helpful to reducing the likelihood of losing them in fires or even having a fire. But as you noted, there is, there's a real challenge with balancing that with not encouraging annuals. And that's where I think that, you know, we've seen a kind of a new pressure to, or a new desire to start grazing outside the normal grazing period and start grazing in the fall and winter where we can be mainly just removing fuels versus actually going in and removing photosynthetic active tissues. And that's, I think, where we're, we're hoping to have some effect on fires is there more, more growing season use largely would be a, um, a risk of having, you know, some detrimental effects of grazing, which then potentially would open the plant community up to more exotic annual grass invasion. On the other end, if it's already annual grass invaded, the management of the fuels then is a higher priority. I mean, they're, they've lost their perennials already. We just need to manage the fuels in fall and spring and summer grazing would all be methods to reduce that likelihood of a fire in the annual grassland. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be the thrust of of the the paper and rangelands uh, with Barry Perryman and a couple others from Idaho and Nevada, you might have been on that paper. It was looking at the possibility, you know, based on some of their observations uh, with ranchers, that that fall and winter grazing uh, seems to disrupt the litter in a way that that is a, a a key component of trying to stop cheatgrass. You know, they argued that we focused on having the primary impetus in a grazing plan the perennials and that in places where we have a lot of annuals we may have to shift the primary focus on 
you know, some way to interrupt the reproductive cycle of those annual grasses. And uh, because most of the targeted grazing efforts have been on seed production rather than some other biological mechanism, it seems like we've missed that. A recent case study that, that I've worked on with a Richards ranch in the Owyhees in Idaho uh, looked at some of the Richards observations that cows grazing on cheatgrass range in the late fall, and this is quite a bit lower elevation than we are here, but uh, those cows, uh, Tony says, were pawing through the litter to get at cheatgrass tillers that were active, actively growing inside that litter layer after everything else had gone dormant. And in the process, they were breaking up the litter cover you know, consuming some of these fall germinated live plants and then potentially exposing soil microsites uh, underneath the litter or by opening up the litter uh, that might then accept a perennial grass seed. Um, you know, what's your reaction to the possibility of using dormant season grazing to control cheatgrass? You've discussed that a bit, uh, but is there any, what, what research is there now on that that's, uh, that's either been completed or is ongoing here at the station? Um, there's just a little bit, it's, it's more to do with the Medusa head, but it's the same mechanism. You, mm -hmm. You'll actually see them consume the litter as well as the green mm -hmm. uh, Medusa head coming up. And really there hasn't been a lot done with it. And the problem is that, you know, these things need to be done at a fairly large scale. Mm -hmm. And what, what research has been done to date has all been kind of before and after, which is good research, but to really get at the mechanisms, there needs to be more research where they have the controls where it's not being fall grazed compared to where it is. But definitely fall and winter grazing is a very effective way to reduce annual grass litter and probably reduce annual grass production the next year. And what we see with that is that it is probably an opportunity to help make control more effective and maybe even revegetate these communities. Those next steps are what need to be researched. And what we've um, seen with like Medusa, which I'm pretty sure applies with all annual grasses, is that part of the challenge with good control sometimes is with herbicides is removing that litter some way to get the herbicide on the ground versus tied up in the litter. The other thing with removing litter is that it also, all these annual grasses germinate better with that litter cover and they have a harder time I'm, um, germinating and establishing. It's more than just germination on areas that are just bare ground. It's a a more harsh microsite for them that they're not as adapted to as you know growing with that litter layer over the top of them. Mm -hmm. Now we've been saying for a long time that some litter is good because especially in a in a landscape uh, where you have natural interspaces between plants because there's just not enough precipitation to support 100% ground cover like you would in a you know a more music sod forming natural plant community. It's important to have some litter to protect bare soil. How much, how much litter is enough and how much is too much in a way that promotes the invasives? Yeah, I think, I think the challenge there is that, is that it's all going to be site dependent. And it's more than, you know, as we get steeper slopes, as we remove more litter, especially if it's an annual grassland, if we remove a lot of that litter, then it's more the, more the um, erosional forces are, or, or the more the soil surface is exposed to ero erosional um, processes. In the, uh, in the plant communities that are dominated by perennials and, and uh, native perennials especially, what research I've seen and stuff that I've participated in is that the actual ground litter doesn't really change with grazing in those communities. Now, if you go into an annual dominated plant community, uh, sorry, I should specify with 
moderate, you know, 40% forage utilization. It doesn't change the amount of ground litter. As it goes into an annual grassland, of course, most of that stuff that's this year's crop is will be next year's litter, and then also the litter is consumed, and they can vastly change that litter. And I don't know how we get at what's an optimal um, amount of litter remaining in those communities because every site's going to be different and every year's going to be different. If we have you know a very heavy rainfall year or snow year with lots of runoff when it melts, we're going to need more litter out there to help slow down the erosional forces. But at the same time, in the long run, it would be better if, if we did get that litter down and perennials established in there because over the long run, a perennial-dominated community is going to be much much um, less likely to have soil erosion and other um, degradation of the soil resource. So it's always it's kind of always a question that's going to be up in the air. I think um, if we can establish that this is a method to get to an endpoint that's desirable, a short-term severe reduction in the litter of annual grasses is probably well worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys have also done some research on on various management combinations to try to reduce fire risk, uh, and, and invasive annual grass control is is really related to the broader issue of managing grazing to limit wildfire, and we'll kind of shift to that. You know, research indicates that we can reduce fine fuel loads in a way that that limits the extent and the severity of wildfire. Uh, probably the goal is not to eliminate wildfire because these plant communities are fire adapted and many would say disturbance driven. Uh, agree or disagree? And what kind of management combinations have you guys looked at that may be more effective than you know, grazing or herbicide singly? I think there's... Um within the the, the first part of the question, I think we probably go from fire tolerant originally to then in the lower elevations to probably fire adapted in the higher elevations, they say first communities. And the the lower elevations, as we continue to have more cheatgrass invasion, they're probably becoming essentially um, not adapted or inadapted to uh, fire especially as they lose the perennial bunchgrass component, then fire becomes a, a huge shift in the plant community to a state that we won't recover back from without enormous inputs. But I don't think, you know, on the other end of it, that we can have, say, mountain big sagebrush communities without fire to essentially um, control conifer encroachment of them. We've seen, you know, huge expanses of, you know, uh, junipers and pinyon pine stuff into mountain big sagebrush communities. And if we don't have that periodic fire, we'll lose those communities. Mm-hmm. And what was the second part of the question? Yeah, what research have you done looking at combinations of, say, prescribed fire plus herbicide or prescribed fire plus grazing or grazing plus herbicide as a means of controlling things like cheatgrass and medusa herb? We kind of did, uh, you know, kind of combinations of all of them. Um, the most effective one, if you've got a fully invaded site, you know, very few residual perennial bunch grasses, is we found that a good prescribed burn to remove the litter and potentially remove anything that's already germinated, say if it's early fall, and then spraying a pre-emergent herbicide, then waiting a year and coming back and seeding into them. Um, grazing by itself, we found generally wasn't too successful, and same with uh, prescribed burning. But you especially combine, you know, one of those within a, a herbicide treatment to then control the next cohort of annuals that are going to try to come up, kind of creates a window in there that we can potentially seed perennial uh, vegetation into. There's some discussion about livestock grazing being an ecological substitute for fire as a disturbance. Uh, 
Any thoughts on, on that? I think in some systems it could be. I think it's a little harder in um, the sagebrush communities. The one kind of scenario that you could see it being a substitute for fire potentially is just reducing the fine fuels and keeping those turning over at a faster rate. But by and large, um, fire in this system affected the woodies more than the herbaceous. Mm-hmm. And at least grazing with cattle isn't generally affecting the woodies. They're generally avoiding them or consuming very, very minute amounts of them. So in that case, no grazing really wouldn't be a substitute for fire. Mm-hmm. But what we have seen, I think that's kind of, you know, what some of the alludes to is that we can manage the fine fuels with it to the point that the fires are less severe. And that's important now because of the fact that when we have a severe fire, then annual grasses are a threat versus historically there wasn't an annual that would then take over the plant community and shift its trajectory to something that we would have a hard time coming back from. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some evidence that limiting sagebrush canopy cover below some threshold percentage may be critical in uh, preventing a, a fire severity that results in a stand replacing fire, potentially replacing both the shrubs and the and the bunch grasses, if there's sufficient heat to kill the crown of the bunch grasses. Uh, any any research on that here? Any thoughts about methods for sagebrush canopy reduction? Yeah, that's a challenging one, but um, there's pretty strong mechanistic um, research, and I was involved with this chat. Uh, Boyd was actually the lead on it, but it showed that in the Wyoming big sagebrush communities that almost all the mortality of bunch grasses occurred within like 50 centimeters of that basal, um, the trunk essentially of the sagebrush plant. As you got between the sagebrushes that those plants generally survived the fire. As we get more and more sagebrush and it thickens up in there, then that distance between the sagebrush is so small that you have a huge amount of the area essentially suffering high mortality. Mm-hmm. The the challenge in those communities, and we've looked at some of this, is that you know me- mechanical treatments or herbicide treatments to reduce the shrubs would be you know essentially the only well not the only way but the most easy to apply method to to changing the level of sagebrush cover. What we've seen though is that once you have really high sagebrush cover, then the risk uh, uh, with treating that sagebrush is then that opens the plant community up to annual grasses just by this disturbance of reducing that dominant vegetation. Um, probably um, there's probably some method of using maybe a browser such as sheep at the right time that could maybe reduce them and slowly over time so that the perennial bunch grasses could respond favorably. I would say our probably better bet is to try to limit that from happening in the first place. And from what, from a lot of our long-term um, sagebrush stuff, we see that if we manage these Wyoming big sagebrush especially fairly um, well, that they don't really thicken up to the point that they're mm-hmm. going to have that high risk. Now, on the higher end where there's more moisture, they're going to get really thick with um, sagebrush because there's just more resources available. However, those plant communities, they're more resilient and I think a lot of those will recover naturally after a fire on them, but probably more important than those to keep it from getting overly thick is to keep that um, infrequent fire occurring, which we haven't done so far, which, you know, you thicken up with sagebrush and then you have that transition then if it's available, a conifer encroaching there. And then you have an even more severe fire because when a juniper burns, you have a very hot, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you know, essentially, bare spot after the fire where that juniper was because of all that dry woody vegetation releasing so much heat energy into the soil. 
with with fire on on sagebrush and the mortality on perennial grasses near the sagebrush is that because it's hotter right there or because the residents time of the heat is longer it's a combination of both um okay. we did some research where we actually had thermocouples underneath the sagebrush in the inner spaces and um it was that combination that with that woody vegetation it was much harder but right. it was also then a much longer period of time that you had these elevated temperatures and what research is out there is, is pretty pretty strong that, that combination of elevated temperatures and elongated elevated temperatures is where you see your high mortality of your uh, perennial bunch grasses mm-hmm. as well as you know others like perennial forbs yeah and you say managing sagebrush well so that it doesn't expand too much uh, does that primarily include protecting perennial grasses so that they're providing some pushback and competing below the ground with the sagebrush? Yes. Okay. So when I said manage the sagebrush, I meant actually more manage the sagebrush community. And that's yeah. having a, a good grazing system that's allowing those perennial bunch grasses to maintain their size and their density across the landscape. Right. I've seen a number of estimates on what the historic fire return interval was on different kinds of sagebrush plant communities. And uh, there's... You know, those numbers range from 35 to 200 years, depending on what kind of sagebrush it is and, you know, potentially other factors like fine fuel loads in the sagebrush ecosystems. Uh, what's your guess as to how often, you know, these shrub step plant communities in central Washington that are characteristic of quite a bit of Washington as well uh, and, and other parts of the Intermountain West and the Great Basin, what do you, what do you think? we could expect in terms of a fire return interval that we could, should consider natural? I think the, uh, the prior estimates you quoted are probably, probably uh, pretty accurate. As we go from low elevation to high elevation, more productive to less productive or vice versa, that it's just so variable. And we see areas, of course, there are some exceptions that are areas that maybe didn't have a lot of potential for, um, a naturally occurring fire, but then there was a lot of um, fires that were um, lit by Native Americans. And I think that that wide range is probably just what it is, that I don't think there's a one standard, you know, fire return interval that would apply for all. So we get the higher elevations, you know, Rick Miller has some areas that he's documented fire return intervals, you know, as short, I think it's like maybe 12 to 14 years. And then of course, then there'll be a period that there's, you know, 44 years without a fire, and then they'll have two back to back. You come down to these Wyoming big sagebrush communities, especially some of these that are really low yeah. productivity, yeah. it would be very hard to carry a fire in there at all. And so it must have been, you know, a heck of a, a, a you know, weather event, you know, high winds right. and stuff like that to carry these fires. So sadly, I don't think there's there's one or even very, you know, there's no good estimate for it all because it's so variable across the landscape mm-hmm. and across the region. In sagebrush plant communities, what do we lose if we prevent it from burning periodically? Is it mostly, you mentioned the sagebrush canopy dominance is likely, you know, somewhat limited internal to the plant community and not just by fire. Are there other things that we lose if it doesn't burn sometimes? Yeah, I think the, especially the higher elevation, that's where our, our most obvious effects of not having fire and what we see there is that, you know, over time that the conifers generally will encroach and you will lose the sagebrush community, which then means it's not habitat for anything that needs sagebrush like sage grouse. We've also looked at even just burning within those. And you do, with fires, you create a different habitat out there 
that maybe has more insects or different types of insects, more flowering forbs or different flowering forbs, different shrubs for a short period of time. And then it you know, goes back to sagebrush and throughout there. And when we don't have any fire across the landscape, then you essentially lose those different types of habitat. And that probably affects productivity in terms of different wildlife species. The lower elevation sites, um, it, it's challenging because at this point in time that there's such a risk of annual grasses coming in after any kind of disturbance that you know removes a dominant vegetation, whether it's perennial bunch grasses or shrubs. And so at this point, I don't know what we what we lose versus by not having fire compared to what we lose if we had fire. I think they're starting to, you know, balance each other out or you know and be, you know, be more negative to to uh, have it burn and have annual grass come in. Now that being said, we do see that some of these plant communities, well and big sagebrush plant communities that are in really good condition, if they burn, they don't have that cheatgrass invasion or medusa head or bentonata that they're dominated by perennial bunch grasses. You maybe don't have shrubs for a long time, but you have a nice native grassland that at some point, as long as it doesn't, you know, continue to burn too frequently, will then be redominated by shrubs. But I think at the lower elevations that we don't really have a problem with that because of the increased fuel loads with annual grass, stuff like that, that we've seen most of those areas be, you know, burn too frequently or be at risk of burning that those ones probably isn't a big issue to not have fire in them compared to the higher elevations where we need fire to limit conifer encroachment. There's been quite a bit written about how rangelands are characterized more by variability than by aridity. And that if that's the case, that uh, maybe abiotic factors or episodic biological events may drive plant community change more than, more than grazing management. Uh, your thoughts on that? What's the variability around here? I've seen some charts that show, you know, coefficient of interannual variability and precipitation. What does that look like in Central Oregon? Yeah, so um, we have a really interesting uh, data set from our experimental range just between here and, and Bend. And um, we just look at the annual precipitation. Our average for over, you know, 50 years is about 11 inches there. But then if you actually say, you know, how often does precipitation in a given year fall within, you know, 10% of that mean? And we find out that 75% of the time it's greater than that 10%. So most of the time we don't have average precipitation. So like you said, it's mm -hmm. really variable. And it goes from, you know, double the amount of precipitation a year to then less than half of that. And it's pretty common. So most of the time we're dealing with, most of the time we're dealing with drought. And then we have these few years that bring the average up. And so that's, of course, a real challenge to, to management and sustainability of these rangelands. But I do think that, um, that if grazing is properly managed, that we generally see that it has very, very minor, if at all, impacts on plant communities. As we learn more about some of these destructive fires in the lower elevations and grass invasion, we can actually see the benefits of it. Now, that being said, I think, you know, heavy repeated defoliation in the spring clearly has some um, detrimental effects to plant community. If that happens long enough, it will of course cause an undesirable shift in that plant community to an annual grass community. So it's all really about the management of the grazing, whether or not it's um, having a negative impact on the plant community or not, or even having a beneficial impact. And that was gonna be my next question. <clears throat> you know, we can say that managed grazing or well-managed grazing allows just natural processes to dominate rather than herbivory 
Uh, but the million dollar question is, you know, where is that threshold of of grazing that's heavy enough or too frequent enough or severe enough that it that it causes a negative change? And is it, you you began to answer that with heavy grazing in the springtime. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we talked with Karen Longbaugh and then later with Floyd Reed about some grazing rules of thumb that maybe have worked or haven't worked, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, one of one of the things that we talked about was the recent paper by Wayne Burkhardt and Ken Sanders uh, looking, trying to do a synthesis of everything that was out there on growing season grazing of bunch grasses specifically. And uh, my takeaway from that was that they concluded as long as the plants are allowed to produce seed periodically, you're probably going to be okay. And it seems like a lot of what happened across the West, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, was that uh, we were trying to apply good animal husbandry principles to range management, you know, where you're trying to match the animal's uh, nutrient demand with the forage supply curve. And if you do that, you've got, you've got cows grazing spring range uh, potentially every year. Any other thoughts on on rules of thumb or, or or things that a person for sure should not do in order to avoid crossing this threshold where grazing becomes the dominant factor influencing the plant community? Yeah, I, I think you hit that one right on the nail on the head. That repeated spring use, essentially not allowing the, the plants to complete their life cycle and produce seeds in a year, that's the one thing that we know for sure we should never do. We've seen with some of our research that we even with fairly heavy grazing the plants are resistant to that for a number of years but at, over time you'll start seeing them shrink in their basal areas that's the the crown of the bunch grass that will get smaller and smaller and at a certain point then they'll die out of the plant community whereas all we have to do is start altering that season of use where we're grazing you know in the spring for you know one year and the next year we wait till after they've completed their life cycle and set seed not interfering with them in that year. And that kind of balances out. The trouble we generally run into is when people, you know, say, oh, we'll just reduce the numbers and we'll, we'll still graze the spring one, you know, every spring. Right. And what you see then that scenario is, yes, there's a lot of the plant communities look fine across that landscape, but the areas they select, they'll select year after year after year, and those areas will suffer. So the, the best option is, is to always practice this kind of, um, uh, altering the season of use. And then it doesn't hurt, of course, to apply an infrequent complete rest and we'll give it a whole year without any grazing just to make sure all those seeds are getting on the ground. So generally, you know, as a rule of thumb, you know, do that and then generally take, you know, 40, 50% of the available forage, but um, no more than that. What we don't know, and it's kind of out in the air is, is or unsettled, is that what happens if we start grazing these dormant seasons and how heavy can we go there? Because we know we're not uh, taking off uh, actually growing tissue that's you know needed to produce seeds and stuff like that. And how much of that can be removed compared to growing season use is, is still un, unestablished, so to speak. But clearly we can take more forage off in the off season mm-hmm. without negatively affecting the plants. It may then have effect on habitat value for species and stuff like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious, when people say dormant season grazing, uh, I associate that with grazing after seed shatter. 
but sometimes dormant season grazing is also used to refer to fall and wintertime grazing, which may be after the plants have begun to green back up and are have a little bit of sort of photosynthetic material, uh, you know, sitting there waiting to get a jump on the spring. Uh, I've seen extremely positive results from grazing in what I would call late summer, when the plant has produced seed and it's dry enough that really nothing's actively growing anymore. But before you get the fall green up, uh, how would you define dormant season grazing? Yeah, I, I think we're thinking along the same lines as when it's not growing. And what we have in this part of the world is we really don't have fall green up generally. Not You know, there's years that are exceptional that of our large native perennial bunch grasses. Mm. We will fairly free. If we have green up of annuals, we'll probably have green up of Sandbrook's bluegrass. The cows don't really graze it. It's just too short. As a matter of fact, it's generally classified as an increase. Or if you graze too hard, it increases in those plant communities. Now, as you do go to areas that are lower elevation or warmer in the winter than we are here, you would need to be very careful not to apply fall and um, winter grazing when those plants are actively growing because you, you would run the risk of severely damaging them as they're trying to you know start growing versus um, if you were applying it in the dry part of the summer, you could really um, apply a lot heavier grazing with no um, negative impacts. So that is something that we, I often refer to it as dormant season grazing, talking about fall and then winter mm-hmm. here. But it, it um, isn't the same, you know, if you go somewhere that's warmer or has wetter um, falls earlier than we do. But generally, you know, here our plants are, are pretty, you know, our large brown bunch grasses are generally not growing until, you know, February. Right. And sometimes even later, depending on oh, what elevation you're at. But yeah, so definitely when I'm talking about dormant season grazing, I'm talking to the physiology of the plant, but this region generally right. is fall and winter. Gotcha. Uh, going back to the discussion about variability, I've, I've seen uh, somebody from Utah State University, maybe one of their experiment stations, gave a presentation at the SRM a while back where they they were looking at you know, 50, 60 years of plant community data, combining that with uh, precipitation or other weather data, looking for you know, something that would correlate between, uh, between meteorological events or temperature or precipitation or something and attaching that to you know, a real punctuated change in the plant community. And, and what they found, as I recall, was that where you had back-to-back years of late spring precipitation, that really drove a marked change in the plant community. Uh, the idea was that year one with that high late spring precipitation when everything is actively growing you got a higher percentage of viable seed and more seed production in total and then year two if you had if you had a second year with above average late spring precipitation that germinated most of that seed and they were able to establish those plants um, do you see anything like that here any anecdotal or experimental observations about about those kind of punctuated changes? Yeah, so we have some long-term um, data sets from a lot of wi- different Wyoming big sagebrush plant communities. And we do see those that are really driven by precipitation, and especially like our forbs. A lot of times we don't see, and a lot of these plant communities are in really good shape, so they're not desperately needing to establish new perennial bunch grasses. But the fluctuation in the, in the forbs is just off the charts and all depends on you know a year or two of precipitation, and especially, you know, um, availability in the spring when they're trying to grow. And so it makes a huge difference in those plant communities. 
we see a similar thing at times though with our perennial bunch grasses that you know they may be they'll we, we get a lot of seedlings of perennial bunch grass almost every year in all these plant communities mm-hmm. but most of them of course don't survive now if we get you know back to back wet springs usually then they survive and are recruited into the plant community if there's available space if they're you know it's a full plant community it's they're not going to survive but if they have you know a neighbor that's, that has died out of plant community or like there's a a significant reduction for some reason that plant community over time that that's an opportunity to fill it back in mm-hmm. sadly a lot of times we don't get those back-to-back years right right I, an agronomist would say that most perennial grasses have to have their seed come in contact with bare mineral soil to germinate uh, is is that the case and for native perennial grasses and, and not just you know say improved irrigated pasture species and is that a compounding factor with the litter created by invasive annual grasses? Yeah, they, they need to have good seed soil contact. I mean, preferably most of these would have, you know, some seed or some soil even over the top of them, which, you know, as they fall naturally from the plant, that usually doesn't happen. But a lot of times we see the ones that are successful, you know, have fallen into like a little crack or something. So they get a really good contact with the soil. And yeah, if you have a, a litter layer and the seeds are getting stuck in it, our natives are not adapted to grow in litter. It's, um, compared to like our exotics, which are you know, the exotic annuals are, are well adapted to grow, you know, through a litter layer or up through it. Mm-hmm. When ours are slow growing and they're not, they're, they're wanting to be at that nice uh, contact with the soil, seed soil surface. Yeah, I saw some data from UC Davis showing that uh, cheatgrass, uh, the radical coming off of the cheatgrass seed would go through as much as seven inches of litter in order to go find some moisture, but they would germinate with you know, with incredible volumes of litter. Yeah. And the same thing with Medusa head, you know, I can, you can pull up Medusa head and see a seed in the middle of the middle of the uh, litter layer growing and root down into the soil. If you were giving advice to a rancher on how to graze healthy range land, that's not infested with invasive annual grass uh, to keep it that way, what would you tell them? I'd probably like essentially what I said earlier about the um, grazing it, this kind of pattern where you alternate between season of use. So you're grazing, you know, during the active growing season, then you're waiting till after seed set and then eat infrequently, just complete periods of rest. Um, I would um, suggest to a guy that's in a, an area that has a high risk of wildfires, especially in the lower elevations, you know, where we don't want them to burn for risk of annual grasses. I would suggest when you have a couple of years of above average production that you probably want to really consider, you know, that fall winter grazing, at least in this area, to reduce that buildup of fuels that would carry a wildfire in the subsequent, you know, coming wildfire season. I think one of the other things that that's hard to do, but um, we have some people that do it, is monitoring your rangelands and seeing that you know either you're not having an effect or you're having a desirable effect you know such as me- measuring your frequency of perennial bunch grass and stuff like that making sure that what you're doing is working as you as you had hoped it had or if it's not you know being ready to make a change i think too often that our monitoring a lot of times is just us looking out there saying it looks good still and looks good still. And, you know what it doesn't look good anymore and then we're you know too late first if we've been monitoring we might be able to make changes earlier Mm-hmm. We had a bit of this discussion in the episode with Floyd Reed. Uh, we were talking about the book that he co-authored with uh, Dave Bradford and Robbie LaValle, looking at 100 years of change uh, there in eastern Colorado, or western Colorado. And 
they had repeated photographs that were taken by some early explorers to look at with how the landscape had changed over time. And we talked quite a bit about fixed point repeat photography as a good means of, of doing long-term monitoring. Do you have any recommendations for ranchers on what they could do to, to add to the subjective data of photos to provide some objective measurements of rangeland health? Yeah. I know their time is really limited, and so that's where, you know, these fixed point right, repeated photography is really useful. I would think in areas that if you have a little concern or you're trying something new, just getting the density of the large peanut bunch grasses, repeatedly measuring that would probably be a really good way to, to ensure that you're meeting your objectives. Describe a method for that. Say a belt transect? I, I would think, you know, something like area? a belt transect, something you can just walk across. Um, I know there's other methods out there. I'm more familiar with the ones that are more aligned for statistic analysis, right. but there are some pretty good ones that um, I think that um, they're like in the range rangeland monitoring handbook mm -hmm. that would probably be adequate for, you know, that kind of, you know, just monitoring versus research. Mm -hmm. But I do know that, you know, there's a lot of extension agents out there that have a lot of experience with this kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, some have even developed, you know, kind of protocols for ranchers and that hitting up those types of guys would be, and gals for that matter would be really good for, you know, getting something that they've kind of tested out with ranchers already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard quite a few ranchers say, that they took over a new piece of ground or changed management, and they almost invariably say, you should have seen what this looked like 20 years ago, but of course, nobody has any evidence. And they always mean that it looks better than it used to. Um, but without without some proof of that, you know, we all have this arbitrary uh, range of, of rangeland health values. And so, you know, they, in their mind, maybe it went from a two to a six on a scale of one to 10, uh, but if they're working with somebody who has less history with the site, you know, say a brand new BLM range con or something, uh, and and in their scale in their head, they think it's at a four and they'd like it to be at an eight and they want to change the management. Uh, it seems like it's useful in those circumstances for the rancher to have some evidence that what they're describing as positive change has actually been taking place. Have you seen any of that around here? Yeah, I, I think the trouble is, is everyone's so busy that they don't do that and they're, they're especially when they're first starting out or they buy a new ground they're, they're desperately trying to financially make it work and make these improvements and the monitoring just goes to the wayside and it's, it's too bad it, it has because it is critical when it comes down to proving that you're a good stewardship or keeping on a path that's working as you said if you get a new range con coming out there and it's your bill m allotment he says this doesn't look very good and the rancher's like, well, it was terrible when we got it. And what we've been doing is working. And someone new comes in there and says, it looks bad compared to, you know, their ideal rangeland. And so they're, and they're wanting to change management to make it better versus it might already be going in the right direction. But, you know, it's easier said than done. I've personally bought 300 some acres and it was very weed infested. I've been doing all kinds of treatments and seeding stuff. And do I have hardly i have hardly any monitoring data mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like i have a few pictures and not here i'm a rain scientist yeah. so it's really easy to go by the wayside so um but it's, it's well worth it especially if you're dealing with something that you're not the sole manager of such as public lands uh, you've been a rain scientist for long enough now that you've got quite a few papers with your name on them how often are you surprised by research results um Usually the stuff that comes down to publishing, I'm not overly surprised. 
But before you set up a study, a lot of times you have something kind of, you know, a mini scale study going on, or you're doing another study and you see a surprising result, which makes you think of, you know, man, we need to test this out. And so I'd say there's probably, you know, 25 to 35% of the time when you're doing research, there's at least something completely unexpected that you can pull out of that. Yes, a lot of stuff we do, we kind of have an idea of what the endpoint might be, but there's a lot of variation out there and we see new things all the time. And that a lot of times drives the next project, which we're trying to potentially confirm what we observed in a different study. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of variability out there and a lot of new things. And so you generally do get you know somewhat surprised. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good. <laughs> yeah, so it's often those preliminary or smaller scale studies that give you the ideas to pursue with larger scale something yeah. that's got a statistic set up on it. Yeah, or even just, you know, you have another large project and something that really wasn't part of the the study pops out and you're like, oh right. man, we got to actually do a study just to test that because that might be, you know, a huge deal. What's the favorite part of your job? I think it's seen people actually use our research to um, either change management or try to restore stuff. I think actually seeing it be useful to people is my most rewarding part of the job. Yeah. And what do you, is there anything in particular you'd like to chase down in terms of research results over the next, say, 10 years? I think one of the biggest challenges we're facing is, is managing fires and managing annual grasses. Those ones are challenging and trying to do them in such a way that it's economically feasible and then also we achieve desirable ecological outcomes. And that's kind of where I I plan on spending probably the rest of my career working on that and hopefully perfecting some of that stuff. But um, that's one of the more challenging issues, but also I, I see it as any, any headway in those areas will um, be very rewarding. Very good. I look forward to seeing that. Uh, Dr. Kirk Davies, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for your time today. Well, thank you for entering me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.